0: The Forward
1: Together podcast from Hollywood Trust with Paul Gosling and Gerard Dean. Welcome to episode 10 of the Forward Together podcast. My name is Gerard Deane, joined today again, as always, by Paul Gosling. Paul, great to see you.
2: And you, Gerard. And we are actually able to see each other over Skype.
1: Yeah, that's social distance podcasting. It's good fun, I have to say. Okay, today's conversation then is with Dennis Bradley. Dennis is a former member of the Policing Board, and that's what the conversation focuses on today, not the Policing Board itself, but on policing in Northern Ireland.
2: That's right, and also, of course, he was uh, jointly leading the Consultative Committee on the Past, and we do talk about legacy as well.
1: Yeah, okay, and thats I think he identifies two issues about policing in Northern Ireland, and obviously policing here relates directly to the past. But he says there's a couple of things that are really obvious that need addressed. The first one being the PSNI's links, uh, or I suppose, structures have adopted the REC structures and that created a lot of issues. But also, there's going to be an issue or there continues to be an issue with dissident Republicans.
2: That's right. I mean, I think the issue about the uh, connections, the cultural connections to the RUC is one of the points that we discuss in detail here. And it is, in a sense, while the pattern reforms really created, attempted to create a new culture and structure, uh, they did inherit an awful lot from the RUC. And we've had chief constables who've come over with a background in the RUC. And that, I think, has led into this uh, this argument, this narrative, that the the RUC has lived on with the PSNI. And that's one of the points that, uh, that Dennis considers within this conversation you know and it has allowed uh this other issue to resurface continue which is the role of dissidents uh within our society who argue that the psni is basically still the ruc
1: yeah conversely to that but he, he does go on to talk about the approval written of the psni at the minute and he's saying it's very high i think he mentions around 80 or something
2: yeah, I mean, it's always a bit difficult to tell with with these surveys because you're not quite sure whether the surveys reflect the whole of society. And of course, twenty percent of non acceptance is still concerning. Mm. Uh, and you know, we, we are a few days beyond the Black Lives Matters. Demonstrations uh, which seem to have gone better in Belfast than in Derry, which actually in Derry has led to certain criticisms of the, the, the way it was being policed. So I think these things probably do go up and down, but it probably equally, as Dennis points out, it would be wrong to overstate criticisms of the PSNI. You know, it was a new start, it's not the RUC, but it clearly it's not achieving unanimous approval from the
1: population. Mm, okay, well, let, let's get into detail and hear the conversation that you had with Dennis.
2: The future of policing, I mean, we're in a situation where we've had the pattern reforms, they've bedded down, but we still don't have a policing system that is respected across all of the community. I mean, what do you think we need to do in terms of the next stage of reform policing? Or or are we already where we need to be? Well, the question in some
0: ways has some inferences in it, which I would have a little bit of difficulty with, but let me try to explain that. Yeah. Um in, in, setting, in, in the setting up of the PSNA, um, the new service actually inherited or was established carrying with it the deeds of the RUC. Uh, and I think that was done at the time to to probably put to keep unionism, which is understandable. I wouldn't have any great problems with that. The difficulty with it was that It meant that it was taking the past with it in the sense that it also had to deal with the past uh, while being part of of probably the conflict itself, and that left it in a bit of a bind. Now, that goes goes through right to the present day. It may have been better, retrospectively, to have not carried the deeds of the RUC with it, but that we are where we are, as they say. So it, has, it carries the deeds of that and it carries the implications of that, and I'll come back to that in a few minutes because that's fairly current at the moment in the sense uh, that there, there are new proposals just published by the British government as to how to deal with the past. The other thing that happened of course was that in the establishment of it, uh, it RUC in a way overhung the new policing service. So did the conflict, in the sense that neither did militant republicanism fully go away. Because we had the dissonance breaking off from, the, from one of the main combatants of the time, which was the Provisional IRA, and their, their home base was mostly within working-class nationalist areas, um, and they kept their presence there right through things like the OMA bomb uh, and right up to the present day. And while, you know, one of the most prominent people within the whole provisional organization, Mark McGuinness, and and within the new political establishment described them as as militarily pathetic, they also carried a threat. And the main threat was, was targeted against the new policing service. On the grounds that they claimed that it wasn't a fully re established, reconstituted, uh, and independent service. Despite, uh, I suppose, despite, the, the good graces of the British government, the good graces of all the political parties in Northern Ireland, and the good graces of the Irish government, uh, that old base continued to say that this was not an independent police service. So, in many ways, they disallowed. Even though they may have been militarily pathetic in Martin McGinnis' words, they were a stone in the shoe to the, to the establishment of one of the things that was so important and most important within working class nationalist areas because it didn't have any real tradition of policing. Uh, it didn't really have any culture of policing. I'm not saying it was an unlawful place because most of those working class areas were actually quite lawful. In fact, very lawful at times, given their history, Uh, extraordinarily lawful, I might might claim. I have a few stories around that. But the presence of the dissidents and their foremost target being the TSNI meant that the establishment of policing within those communities was not what it should have been, because what it needed in there was a very heavy dose of community policing. would have been ge on the different...
2: That's obviously a very fair and balanced summary, Dennis, but I mean, clearly, equally, there are difficulties in how we move forward. And in a sense, that's illustrated by the difficulties around the appointments of the chief constables. We've had some chief constables that have got a history in the RUC and therefore not seen as fair and balanced players because of that. Well, apart from one particular uh, chief constable, the others that came in from England, don't seem to have fully understand the intricacies and difficulties of policing within Northern Ireland, have perhaps a sense of naivety. How, how do we move beyond that bind?
0: Well, I think we move beyond by tackling the two issues that I'm actually after addressing. One is the legacy of the past and the second is the, uh, is, is the dissonance. Uh, I don't think it matters so much about who's the chief constable because he or she is only one particular person. And if he or she is coming into a climate that actually allows and which promotes uh, and follows the, the, the overarching structures and culture of the place, then I wouldn't worry about that too much. Uh, if that chief constable is coming in to keep transforming that and they're from the outside and they don't perhaps have that political uh, sophistication, won't some will, some won't. And I think the one you referred to had a fair amount of political sophistication and others didn't have that political not that- and will continue to be prominent as things change within these islands. Uh, The main political debate that is taking place uh, sidelines dissidency. uh, Militant republicanism to a degree that has never been sidelined in its history. Um, And secondly, the whole whole virus situation and what's happening at the moment makes that even more know how how that will play out in the future. Do they just remain a stone in the shoe? And should there actually be a greater tackling of, of a greater tackling in the sense of a greater involvement of community policing within those areas? As I, as I described earlier, on, there is no history. Uh, I mean, I grew up in Bunkrana, which is only 14 miles down the road, and I grew up with the sons and daughters of uh, police officers. Now, the guards had a great that they inherited a situation of being of being integrated within the community to a degree in which very few police forces within the world uh, are gifted. Uh, they spent perhaps fifteen or twenty years almost trying to lose that uh, within the history. To be fair to the PSNI, I think that they have worked reasonably hard and were successfully at integrating themselves into communities. I get very good feedback at times, not so much about the hard issues around policing, but about the difficult issues around policing. No later than about two weeks ago, uh, someone approached me and said uh, that they had had a death, uh, a sudden death in the family, and two police officers spent a couple of hours there because that's one of the things that has to happen now. Uh, The police have to call if there's an unexpected death, and they were. Extremely uh, praising all the young men and women who who were who were in, within that difficult situation. Um, so I think that there's there's many there's many ways in which you can see this and interpret this. Uh I take your question that where do we move on to? I don't think the middle class. You see, uh, I want to say this. I don't think middle class in any country has any great difficulty with policing. They're inclined to. Accepted and needed first of all, and accepted and find their methodology of integrating themselves into it. Even during the worst of the troubles here, when the RUC were not accepted, I would have, I would have, story after story of where people who were business people and were, and middle class people or welfare people had methodologies of being in touch with the police service and the police service being in touch with that particular group of people. Now, it may have been less so than perhaps with the broader unionist community out of which most of that police force shared What unionism had that, or sorry, non-class people had that ability and had that kind of, um, well, had that gift of being able to wear many faces when, when it was needed. Not, I'm not criticizing that. I'm just saying that, that that's what happens in most countries. Where you find problems, uh, in most countries, is among working class communities. Uh, work, I, I, I say this from the general policing. I'm not talking about white collar policing or white collar crime. I'm not talking about all the more sophisticated. I'm talking about the kind of the the houses and the workplaces where people live and breathe and have their being, uh, and where police integrate themselves or fail to integrate themselves to that. I mean, I have been in situations in Holland, I have situations in France, where the, where the distance between the police and the, the, the air, certain areas of those cities has been much greater than it would have ever been here. Uh, the distrust of policing uh, in some of those working class areas was, was, was quite profound and wasn't very clear that the police uh, architecture and the police leadership. Or the, and the politics of policing was actually terribly well, um, well engaged in trying to tackle that and solve those types of problems. Now, those are those are the issues that we have have, have left behind us, left behind in the sense that we, we can't really solve because we haven't tackled the legacy properly, and we haven't we haven't been able to deal with uh, militant Republicans haven't been able to challenge PSNI in coming up with. It. They have tried. They have. I mean, I do go into working class communities and I see where they're trying, but they're not succeeding to the degree that I would like them to be, uh, to succeed. Uh, and I think that it's very. That you can't really be overly critical because they will say, "But if we go in and do what you're actually asking or requiring, then we can get ourselves killed." Uh, and we have a duty of responsibility towards our own not being killed uh, or blown up or whatever it might be. All of that is, is, is part of the background. On the other hand, uh, it, is, it is true here as it is throughout the world that policing is a strange mixture of uh, trust and, and, and slightly, fear is not the right word, but a certain distant. Cold, dispassionate engagement. Now, let me me try to explain what I mean by that. Um, Policing works. gonna do what that- between, does the community trust the police enough and have enough respect for them both as as a humane body but also as a professional body, that that police force will be more powerful and be su- more successful than the actual organised crime uh, community that is, that, is with, that is active at that particular time. Dublin's a perfect example of that. In the last number of years whereby some communities have been more frightened of the, of the drug gangs than they have been of the police, and perhaps more respectful. When I say respectful, in the sense that young people have been more attracted to the gangs than they have to be to, to policing and so forth. So those are, difficult. those are difficult, but they are measurable. They are measurable in the sense that you can judge where that, where that balance lies, and if that balance is out of kilter, then it's a, it's a, it is it, a task of policing to get it right, uh, to, to reorganise themselves and reculturize themselves into a position of where that community is more on the on, uh, that the continuum uh, is now going towards policing rather than towards the, the either the fear or the disrespect.
2: And of course, That's you a make long
0: answer, a long answer. <laughs>
2: But it's, I mean, it's, but you make a very important point along the way there, Dennis, which is that it's wrong to chase perfection or at least wrong to believe that you're going to achieve perfection because if you go to France and you see the issues around the banlieues Loose and the distrust of the police there, and for myself, active in politics in Britain, in England in the 1980s, where there was a widespread distrust of the police across my right. communities and, right. and especially yeah. through the minor strike and so on, you know, this, uh, you, can't, you can't divorce policing from the context of the political environment.
0: Of course you can't, of course you can't, and in the working class communities that I'm referring to are not just because of sociological issues, you know, not just because of poverty, but because of history. You know, if you've been to Cregan or uh, where, you know, West fast and so forth, you're not just dealing with perhaps working class communities. And, Issues that are there, you're also dealing with that those layers of history. Uh that that working class communities find harder to put aside uh once the challenge surrounded or once the atmosphere is, you know, up the up the raw or whatever it might be. Uh middle class will through some of that stuff and get on with their lives and get on with their whatever their, their, their tasks are. Anyway, sorry. Go oh, yeah.
2: ahead. And in a sense, what we're dealing with is the PSNI's cultural legacy from the RUC. But of course, we also have the other issues of legacy around justice, which you spent a lot of time talking about. And we now have the the government's new proposals on legacy, uh, which is to reduce investigations and to not investigate particularly the Incidents involving um, soldiers. I, what's your view on on the, these latest proposals from the government?
0: Well, I, I haven't. I haven't. I haven't been. I've only been able to get the, the, the top lines on, on, on the new proposals, but um, and I, I have to be careful of what I say about it. But I'm. I I am also cautious of people judging it uh, too quickly because What strikes me is that there's a number of things there which I think uh, at least need exploration. First of all, they're talking about setting up a committee, and as I see it, that committee is resembling what uh, the Consultative Group in the past, of which I was a member, uh, and which did a lot of work on this issue, uh, described as the Legacy Commission. And the Legacy Commission, uh, in that particular, no sets of recommendation, and in that that. Document and that exploration uh, was three people, and one of my fears around the, uh, the Stormont House Agreement, which is kind of which came about ten years after they consulted a group in the past, and which is nearly—I don't remember how many years old—is but seven or eight or nine years old—in um, its management of how to deal with the past, had about thirty or forty or sixty people uh, on the management side of it in the sense that each aspect had more and more people and had a very, as I understood it, had a very strong representation of our local political parties. Now, I have never been of the opinion that our political parties here uh, are capable of dealing with the past, that they will ever deal with it. Um, They will fight over it uh, and they will argue, they will argue and they will fight over it and they will come up with reasons for not doing things. Uh, and there will be always a standoff. Uh, and in fact, the, the, the consultative group, which I've already referred to, I stated this by saying that the people who should deal with it are the two government, not the political parties, because they're not they're not in a position to deal with it. The second thing is that um, it is very important in dealing with the past to be to be incredibly sensitive towards victims. But neither. In being sensitive towards victims, you must never allow victims to be the leaders around this because victims can never agree with this. Uh, there will always be divisions and there will be different narratives and different needs and different passions around this, so you cannot let victims be the leaders within this. And victims have to some degree been politicised, not fully, but to some degree. Uh, some will be representative of the, of the nationalist narrative and some will be representative of the unionist narrative. So. And while we're sensitive to that and need to be sensitive to that, we cannot do that. Now, we're, we're 10, 15, 20 years along from a position, and recently I described it as that the past was always very mucky growing, but it has now turned itself into a swamp. And partly the reason why we've turned it into a swamp is that some of those groups, the local political parties and some of the victim groups, need to take a little bit of responsibility for actually being incapable of allowing a overarching, uh, comprehensive approach to be taken uh, for their various reasons. Um, so it is not just the British government who are who have responsibility, in my opinion, for creating the swamp, and it's not just the Irish government who are responsible for creating the swamp, but it is all those groupings who are responsible for, the, for, for creating this swamp, which is now incredibly difficult, in my opinion, to deal with. The second thing, or the other thing I would say about that, is that the people who have needs uh, within this are not just the political parties and not just the victims? Society has needs. Uh, society's need to move on is needs to be taken into account, needs to be acknowledged and taken into account. Uh, and if the victims and if the political parties here cannot agree, then. You know, society has the right to say, "Well, we'll do what we think is we'll do what we think that which is right and which is, has has justice at its core." But if you refuse and keep refusing that, then society has the right to move on and pass this. It cannot be bogged down in this swamp forever, or what has become this swamp forever. So, in listening to the in the, in looking at the headline of what the new proposals are, it seems to me. There is a possibility of what is within those proposals is a a combining of what was called the um, the investigation unit and the truth unit. I mean, the two things that the consultative group in the past, which then uh, was moved into the the, the Stormont House Agreement, the two big areas of of um, investigation. Investigation unit, which would have been the police uh, unit and the, the truce uh, recovery unit. Now, it seems to me, again, from reading the top line of this, without having seen the detail, it would be important to see the detail uh, and to read the full, if there is a document on it, to, to get a sight of that. It seems to me that there's a possibility that what the government is saying is. Now at this stage, where we're at, at this moment of time, 20 years after and having messed the situation up, perhaps what we should do is, is amalgamate those two units. Now I think that needs looking at, because I think that's a sensible suggestion, if that's what they're saying. Because the possibility of prosecutions are vanishing by the year and certainly nowadays vanishing by the, by the month and possibly even vanishing by the day. Um, and the possibility of, of, of getting to the truth is dependent now, not so much, on anything other than whoever has whoever is charged with dealing with it, been given full access to all the documentation that exists, no matter where it is. Uh, And that we have enough, that we have an assurance that there's an independence, that that the people, the small number of people, the one or two or three people who are doing this job uh, are independent enough to be reasonably well trusted by most people. And secondly, that they assure us that they have uh, access to to all the information and that it is up to them then to divulge it in the fashion which is... uh, which is both just but which is also respectful of all the various needs and all the various responsibilities that will exist within that.
2: Okay Dennis, that's that's really helpful. Let me just run a thought past you before we round off here, which is that the legacy issues are actually becoming more toxic with time because as we move away from the experience of people in the troubles, it's about writing history and different interest groups claiming victory of what happened. I mean, do you think that's a reasonable perception? Oh, I think that's quite quite reasonable.
0: I mean, that's the reason I call it a swamp, because if you go into a swamp, there uh, there's no bottom to it, and, and you don't really know what's, what's gobbling you up, except that it's ground in which there is no foundation, uh, and it's just a mixture of... All, fermentation has been going on for years and years and years and years uh, and has, has, has melded itself into something which which you cannot stand on and we're in danger of letting the past become that um, and I mean a, 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 a good example of that recently or a sad example of that recently was the sorry story about the young Quinn boy hmm. uh, and people saying that this should be dealt with and, and that's correct, it should be dealt with, the difficulty is that if you pick out one one ass one one case i no matter what that case is whether it be blue sunday whether it be young quinn whether it be uh lamont whatever it might be if you pick that and say i want that devil without comprehensively saying we're going to deal with everything in a fashion which is as just as we can make it given where we're at and given the amount of last time and given the forensics which don't exist anymore and given the number of people who have died and given given, 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 all the given that that you can put into that particular basket, unless you actually say, I will not deal. And what we have done, I will not deal unless we deal comprehensively. And, of course, in, in in the last five, six, seven years, what has happened is that people have found a way of dealing with the individual things or with the small group cases. Example, people discovered that inquests now are not about... How, when and how someone died. Sorry, when uh, and... Yeah, the uh, inqu- inquest used to be when and how somebody died. They have now become when, how and why someone died. The why, of course, comes in mini tribunal, And people discovered that that's... So people are now rushing towards more and more uh, inquest and, and that. And they have the right to do that. Because the government... The government or the government and political parties have, have failed to actually provide a comprehensive methodology. So people have the right to find their own ways through that which has not been dealt with, and that which has been legacy to them in their grief uh, and in their uh, yes, in their mourning, in in, that, uh, in their mourning. But the other thing, I suppose, that happens is that in in, in failing uh, to deal to deal comprehensively with this, we, we, we go around in circles. Uh, and in going round in circles, we just keep on, keep going back to the point on which we, which we left sometime, um, whether it was 10 years ago or 20 years ago. And we, if we don't find the way of doing it, um, I think that the people who will get hurt most in this will be the actual victims themselves. Because the police will find a way of moving on, Politicians will find a way of moving on, uh, and society will find a way of moving on. And the, 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 the most hurt victims, uh, who have found voices at the moment but have allowed those voices to be politicised, uh, actually will be left behind. Uh, and that's unfortunate because, and that's that's just a bad legacy to leave for the future. But it will be the legacy in which we in which we all have to live with.
2: Thank you, Dennis. I mean, my my concluding thought on that is that perhaps we need to value objective historians as well as other legacy processes. Well, I
0: have no problem with, it, with the objective historians. Well. The problem is finding. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very much,
2: Dennis.
1: Okay, that was the conversation that you had with Dennis there. So, Paul... He talks about a role in the future or a continuing role for both governments when it comes to policing in Northern Ireland.
2: Absolutely.
1: And especially in dealing with the past.
2: Uh, absolutely, Gerard. I, I think, that, I mean, if you if you talk to Dennis on a regular basis, and I, I have to had the privilege, the enjoyment of speaking, interviewing Dennis on several occasions. I mean, this is one of the points that he says. I mean, whatever you do in terms of the constitutional arrangements of Ireland, it's naive. Um, or, you know, preferentially policy-driven in terms of thinking that you can actually achieve a solution to the problems of Ireland without taking an all-Ireland dimension to it. You know, you can still have constitutional separation, if you wish, but you still actually do need to have cooperation between the two governments or the three governments, and without that, you do have problems, And, and that's one of the points I think Dennis makes consistently. There has to be engagement, there has to be commitment, really, from all three governments.
1: Yeah. And something else when it comes to dealing with the past is Dennis talks about victims in the conversation and he talks about the fact that you can't leave them out of legacy conversations. Yes, it has to be led by governments, but of course, victims have to be part of that as well.
2: Yeah. And and, and obviously, especially within the convent conversations that are going around, I mean, we are living, leaving victims out of the situation. Mm understandably, victims are very angry in terms of the pensions arrangements. Uh, and, you know, it is, it is pretty amazing that we're still where we are in terms of not having achieved the solution in terms of pensions and recognition of the hurt and pain that uh, the victims have, have suffered, both physical pain uh, and also the, the mental trauma of this continuing. And, and it has been made worse by the pensions arrangements not being finalized and, and signed off.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I suppose that touches on the final point that I'd like to talk about with Dennis, where he says trust is key. I think at all whoever's dealing on the past or leading on the past has to be trusted by everyone involved.
2: Yes, that's right. The trust is absolutely central. But also, I think the other point that that we discussed in in the conversation that is really key is this sense that the writing of history and the rewriting of history is almost like the political struggle that was a military struggle continuing in a different format and and Mm. ownership of the the narrative of the history becomes you know at least it's a peaceful struggle but it is still a struggle it is still something that's argued over and that really is a problem that uh, that we can't seem to overcome
1: okay well that's it for this episode, a really interesting conversation again Paul thank you for taking the time to have a conversation with Dennis and thanks to Dennis of course for meeting with you. Thanks to Eamir Doherty too, for production support and to the funders of this podcast, the Community Relations Council for Northern Ireland and of course the Department for Foreign Affairs through the Reconciliation Fund. So we look forward to talking to you next time. Community Relations Council for Northern Ireland supports this podcast through its media grant scheme and core funding programme.